0: Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we examine the archetypes that scripture contains and then use them to better understand ourselves and our God. Well, we are really getting close to the end of the book of Genesis, and we have been in this book for a total of 43 weeks now, and we still have two more to go. I know for me that it's been very affirming to slow way down and just sit and meditate on the various passages throughout the year. To be able to walk slowly and not feel rushed to push through it all and get done in a single year. I pray that you yourselves, you have recognized just how much we miss when we rush through scripture and don't take the time to sit with the text and to mull things over without some grand goal to accomplish. To allow the text to be what it is and then to discover what it is that it's trying to do. As we've gone through this book, we found that there is a lot going on in the text. It's way too easy to simply miss, skip, or gloss over. And I even haven't had the opportunity to bring out many of the things that I've found in the text. I don't know that it's even possible to reach the bottom of a text as profound, intricate, and artistically arranged as the Bible. Its scope and execution is exquisite when we finally understand what it is that the text is attempting to do. When we can discern the things that the text is affirming and discard the things that our society insists must be the point. Our modern institutions insist that we must only ever view the text as literal and only break out the symbols and metaphors when we have no recourse to the literal. Or else they say that we must stick to the purely abstract and never even entertain the literal. This view of scripture is a false and uniquely modern view of scripture. Ancient peoples were symbolically and thematically minded people. They understood and spoke in symbols and themes in a way that we can only catch small glimpses of, because the skill has been trained out of us through an Enlightenment mindset. But they also told their stories accurately. Well, I'm here to tell you that the symbols have great meaning, and our exploration of Genesis in this way, I hope, has perhaps helped you to catch a glimpse of this truth. The biblical authors, especially here in the Torah, were not simply recording historical stories. The author of the Torah was, I believe, intentionally choosing what and how to tell the stories in a way that contains the greatest depth of meaning that goes way beyond just the literal understanding. If we're to understand scripture as more than just simply a story that we can't really even connect to today, we have to learn to pierce the depths of the text for the treasure that it does contain. As a famous rabbi, Belshem Shem Tov, once said, a rabbi is the geologist of the soul. He can tell you how to dig, where to dig, and what to dig for. But the digging you must do yourself. This is so very true. In the story of Genesis, in many ways, it creates for us a map of history. From beginning to end, the highlights of our history and our future can be found in this book. And that's part of what we're going to look at today. You see, the story of Joseph, as I've touched on before, is one that is a foreshadowing of Yeshua, our Messiah. But it is much, much more than that. It's a picture of our future relationship with the Messiah. It's a model of the Messianic Kingdom and the role that we will play in the world. There's something truly powerful in this fact, and that's something that we're going to contemplate in much greater detail today. So, let's sit back and read this Parsha, and then examine it in greater depth. Genesis 46, 28-47, 31 and he sent Yehuda before him to Joseph to point out before him the way to Goshen. And they came to the land of Goshen. And Joseph made ready his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father Yisrael. And he appeared to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a long time. And Yisrael said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face, that you are still alive. And Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I am going up to inform Pharaoh and say to him, My brothers and those of my father's house who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds that they have been men of the livestock and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have and it shall be when pharaoh calls you and says what is your occupation that you shall say your servants have been men of livestock from our youth even till now both we and our fathers so that you dwell in the land of goshen for every shepherd is an abomination to the mitzrites then joseph went and spoke to pharaoh and said my father and my brothers their flocks and their herds and all that they possess have come from the land of canaan and see they are in the land of goshen And he took five men from among his brothers and presented them to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, both we and also our fathers. And they said to Pharaoh, We have come to dwell in the land, because there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the scarcity of food is severe in the land of Canaan. And now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. And Pharaoh spoke to Yosef, saying, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Mitzrayim is before you. Settle your father and brothers in the best of the land, and let them dwell in the land of Goshen. And if you know of capable men among them, then make them chief herdsmen over my livestock. And Joseph brought in his father Yaakov, and set him before Pharaoh, and Yaakov blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Yaakov, How old are you? And Yaakov said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojournings are one hundred and thirty years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not reached the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their sojournings. And Yaakov blessed Pharaoh, and went out from before Pharaoh. So Joseph settled his father and his brothers, and gave them the possession in the land of Mizraim in the best of the land, in the land of Rautenses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father and his brothers, and all his father's household, with bread for the mouth of the little ones. Now there was no bread in all the land, because the scarcity of food was very severe, and the land of Mizraim and all the land of Canaan became exhausted from the scarcity of food. And Yosef gathered up all the silver that was found in the land of Mitzrayim and in the land of Canaan, for the grain which they brought. And Yosef brought the silver into Pharaoh's house. And when the silver was all spent in the land of Mitzrayim and in the land of Canaan, all the Mitzrites came to Yosef and said, Give us bread, for why should we die in your presence? For the silver is gone. And Yosef said, Give your livestock, and I give you bread for your livestock, if the silver is gone. So they brought their livestock to Yosef, and Yosef gave them bread in exchange for the horses and for the flocks they owned, and for the herds they owned, and for the donkeys. Thus he fed them with bread in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when they had ended, they came to him the next year and said to him, We do not hide from my master that our silver is all spent, and my master also has the livestock we own. There has not been left any before my master but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for bread, and let us and our land be servants of Pharaoh. And give us seed, and let us live and not die, and let the land not lie waste. And Yosef bought the entire land of Mitzrayim for Pharaoh, because every man of the Mitzrites sold his field, because the scarcity of food was severe upon them, and the land came to be Pharaoh's. And as for the people, he moved them into the cities, from one end of the borders of Mitzrayim to the other end. Only the ground of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had from what Pharaoh gave them by law, and they ate that which Pharaoh gave them by law. Therefore they did not sell their ground. And Joseph said to his people, Look, I have bought you and your land today for Pharaoh. Look, here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And it shall be that in the harvest you shall give one-fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths as your own, as seed for the field, and for your food, and for those of your households, and as food for your little ones. And they said, You have saved our lives. Let us find favor in the eyes of my master, and we shall become Pharaoh's servants. And Yosef made it a law over the land of Mitzrayim to this day, that Pharaoh should have one-fifth except for the ground of the priests only, which did not become Pharaoh's. And Israel dwelt in the land of Mitzrayim and the land of Goshen, and they had possessions and were fruitful and increased exceedingly. And Yaakov lived in the land of Mitzrayim seventeen years, so the length of Yaakov's life was one hundred and forty-seven years. And the time for Israel to die drew near. And he called his son Yosef and said to him, now, if I have found favor in your eyes, please put your hand under my thigh and show loving-kindness and truth to me. Please do not bury me in Mitzrayim, but I shall lie with my fathers, and you shall take me up out of Mitzrayim and bury me in the grave. And he said, I do as you have said. He said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. And Yisrael bowed himself on the head of the bed. So one thing that I want to make clear before I begin Examining the symbology and the archetypes of scripture, it does not mean that the text is not literally true. Uh, Too many times people feel threatened by looking at scripture in this way, and often the excuse is given that because people have mistreated and misused this method of interpretation in the past, and and even today, that the entire means of interpretation is invalid. Now that's a a logical fallacy called the slippery slope fallacy. It's not true. A hammer that's used to drive a screw does not invalidate the hammer as a useful tool. One must simply learn the proper use of a hammer. Another reason for this fear is that the underlying assumption that if the text is symbolic, then it cannot be literal. But the two are not mutually exclusive. A thing can be very real in itself and yet be useful as a symbol as well. Both can be true, the literal and the figurative. How do I know this to be an accurate assessment? that Scripture can be interpreted through abstract lenses. While well, the New Testament authors, they use these means to interpret Scripture for themselves, many of the prophecies that are called out in the New Testament as being fulfilled in Yeshua have nothing to do directly with Yeshua in their plain meaning. It's only through an abstract reading of the prophetic text with historical hindsight that allows one to interpret some of the things that are claimed as prophecy of Yeshua. An example of this, Matthew 2, 23. And he came and dwelled in a city called Nazareth, thus to fill what was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Now question, where was that spoken of in the prophets? No one knows. Now there are theories abounding, and many use this verse as a proof text of a contradiction in the Bible It claims that the prophets say that Yeshua would be a Nazarene, but the prophets don't say that. Anti-missionaries will use this verse to disprove the New Testament, because there is no direct quote in any of the prophets that say anything about being called a Nazarene. Unless you apply a non-literal interpretive technique to Isaiah 11.1. 1. Isaiah 11.1 1 says, A rod shall come forth from the stump of Jesse, and a sprout from his roots shall be fruitful. What? Oh Wait, wait a minute, where does it say he's going to be a Nazarene? in that verse. Ah, a sprout of his roots, a shoot in many translations. And the word for shoot in Hebrew is Natsar. If we apply an abstract interpretive method to interpret this verse, we will find it clearly. He is a Natsar from Natsaret. Right? Makes perfect sense in an abstract meaning kind of way which is so common throughout scripture and many other quotes from the torah used by paul and others are used to draw parallels in order to make a deeper point that the plain reading doesn't include Uh, one of my favorites is first corinthians 9 9 through 10 for it has been written in the torah of moses you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain is it about oxen god is concerned or does he say it because of us all for this was written because of us that he who plows should plow in expectation, and that the thresher in expectation of sharing. Now, if we read the Torah as only literal, and if we do not add to the Torah in our modern understanding of what it means to add to the Torah, then Paul is doing real harm and even violence to the Torah of God by making this statement. He is drawing a parallel in the situations and taking a command that has to do specifically and literally with oxen and is applying it to a much larger and grander topic. He even makes the bold claim, is it oxen that God is concerned about? And many of us would answer, "Oh well, 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 yes, that's what the command says. And so we should not read anything else into this command at all because we cannot add to the Torah. Now, does the command to not commit adultery only apply to actually participating in the acts of sex with someone who is not your spouse? Or did Yeshua himself add to the Torah when he said that this command applied to lustful thoughts in Matthew five, twenty seven through twenty eight? He says you heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone looking at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now is Yeshua adding to the Torah? Or is he interpreting the Torah? Or how about Second Corinthians eight, fourteen through fifteen? says, But by fair sharing, that now, at this time, your plenty for their need, so that their plenty might also be for your need, that there might be a fair sharing, as it has been written. He who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little had not less. In this passage, Paul quotes from Exodus 16. It's a chapter about manna being given from heaven, and he compares it to the collection efforts that he had undertaken for people who were in the midst of a famine to the people being in the wilderness and collecting the manna is he taking this text out of context yes he is and no he's not the literal text speaks of people of israel going out and collecting manna in the morning for their daily food in their collection efforts it came to be that no one had too much or too little and it's this idea this symbol and the extrapolation of the text that allows paul to use this story of manna from heaven and then to use it in connection to charitable giving for those who are experiencing hardship from those who have to those with needs. Now, let me be very clear, I'm not advocating a government system that operates in this way. This is a willing and participatory method of sharing. It is not what we see in our modern societies where things are taken by force from people and then distributed. Paul is making an appeal to people to give, and he's using an example. Now I could go on in this vein and pull out over a hundred other scriptures in which the literal meaning of the Torah is shifted by Yeshua or by the apostles to include things that are not in the literal meaning of the text. And I do this only to demonstrate that there is a precedent for this way of reading Scripture symbolically. So with that in mind, I want to highlight a few things that are in this Parsha that are of importance. But then I want to build a picture around the ideas in this text, as well as in many of the chapters that we have just finished going through in the past month. I mentioned last week how many of the symbols that we read of the story are used in opposite ways than they're used in the rest of Scripture. So let's keep this in mind as we go. So as this chapter opens, Joseph is in Egypt and has been for many years. The famine has been going on for two years, and Joseph has been in charge for nine. Now Jacob, on the other hand, has just discovered that his son, who he thought was dead, is in fact alive, and with great joy he heads to Egypt to see him. And as Jacob comes into the land, Judah is sent ahead to point out the way to the fruitful And the chosen place in the land joseph makes his chariot ready remember the chariot being the mobile throne this mobile seat of power and he travels to meet jacob in the space between canaan and pharaoh in the land of promise the only fertile land in the midst of this famine when they finally meet jacob and joseph they hug and they cry for some time father and son are finally reunited in the land of promise While there, Joseph coaches his family in what to say to Pharaoh in order to receive a beneficial outcome. He says, tell him that you are shepherds, and he will put you in Goshen. Because shepherds are an abomination to the Egyptians. Joseph then takes five of his brothers before Pharaoh, and they answer appropriately. And Pharaoh responds to this, you are the family of Joseph, the best of the land of Egypt, the land of Goshen, it's yours. And then he says something very curious. He says, if you know of capable men among them, meaning your brothers, make them chief herdsmen over my livestock. But wait, shepherds are an abomination to the Egyptians. How does this compute at all that Pharaoh has need of shepherds in the land of Egypt? Unless, and I mentioned this before, unless Pharaoh is not Egyptian himself, but is rather a Semite one of the shepherd kings that ruled Egypt from approximately 1630 to 1523 BCE. Although this fact alone solves many of the issues that we come across when we read the text, when we encounter things that make little sense to us, such as this. Why were shepherds an abomination to Egypt? It's thought that this has something to do with Egyptian worship practices, but there's no proof of this. I mean, it's well documented that Egyptians ate many of the animals that they also worshipped. This is not a Hindu-like system where every animal of a type was sacred, but rather, in Egyptian religion, one of the animals that represented a specific god would be worshipped. I find it just as likely that this request to find a shepherd among the sons of Israel was a side effect of being conquered and ruled by foreign shepherd kings. This fact also explains the upcoming economic transition that takes place in Egypt. Pharaoh's rule was perhaps rather weak, and it was Joseph who helped him to solidify his control over the people of Egypt. Regardless, Joseph's brothers, while being an abomination to the inhabitants of the land, are given the choice location. They're honored and raised above the average Egyptian. An abomination to them now has higher honor than anyone else in the land. The low have once again been brought high, and the high have been brought low. Again, we see another reversal of fortune in the text. After the brothers leave, then Jacob is brought before Pharaoh alone. And upon entry, Jacob blesses Pharaoh. And we're only told of one question that Pharaoh asks. How old are you? Jacob responds with humility because he's been in a place of humility for so long. He says, I am 130, and the days of my wanderings have been few and evil. And I haven't reached the ages that my father reached in their lives. And with that, the biblical record of this audience with Jacob before Pharaoh is over. And Jacob blesses Pharaoh and is once again on his way as he heads out. Jacob's life had indeed been hard. He had experienced a lot of pain in his life, he had lost face. He had lost possessions, he had lost wives, he had lost sons. He's lost more than many of us will ever stand to lose. This man who was blessed by God. And it's only here at the end of all things that Jacob is finally rewarded for his faithfulness. The covenant spoken to Abraham it comes partially true in Jacob's life. All of the world has indeed been blessed because of the family of Abraham. Otherwise, everyone would have perished without Joseph to save them. And in verse 11 and verse 12, we read that the family of Israel were settled and given land as a possession. And then we read that they were given bread from the hand of Joseph. Now, there is in the text a very interesting correlation going on here that we shouldn't miss. But we're going to wait for a few moments before coming back to this. In verse 13, the text changes the focus to the inhabitants of the land and Joseph's interactions with them. To many, what Joseph does here it seems unjust. Joseph is using his position and his power to take everything from the inhabitants of the land of Egypt. And he uses his power to force them to choose to enslave themselves to him. Why? Well, for the sake of their lives. In this transaction, it begins with silver all of the silver of egypt it then moves to the goods that the people own their flocks and herds and the animals of all sorts then they sell their land and all of the future crops that come from their land then they sell themselves thus it is that joseph bought the entire land of egypt for pharaoh with one exception the priests the priests of egypt received their portion From Pharaoh. They received their land and their bread. These things were not removed from the priests, and the priests could not sell them and had no need to buy them. So, did you see that correlation in the text? Did you catch it? What is it that Pharaoh gave to the priests in Egypt? Well, he gave them land and he gave them their food. And what was it that Joseph gave to his own family in Egypt? He gave them land and he give them food a parallel is being drawn here egypt had its own priests honored and protected by the king but in this situation god inserts his own family into the midst of egypt and a family that receives the same benefits as the priests the great benefit is that they do not have to sell themselves to the king A nation is being founded that is separate from the nation surrounding them. And that nation has the best of the land, the best of the food, and the same status and protections of the priestly class. Now, this is not just a cool parallel, but it's something that will come into play again very shortly. And once Pharaoh owns all the land of Egypt, he then turns to the people and gives them seed to sow in the land. And it says, here's the food for you and your household. And how do they respond? They thank him. They love him. He has saved their lives, and he's being compassionate to them, and he's looking out for them and for their sustenance, for their future well-being. And in his compassion, as a benign dictator, he only requires 20% of their produce. And Israel did what God had commanded in the beginning. They dwelt in the fertile land that God had chosen for them, and they were fruitful and multiplied greatly. Jacob lived another 17 years, and when he suspected that he was near death, he called in Joseph and made him swear a promise. He says, When I die, do not bury me in Egypt. Take my body back to Canaan and bury me in the place of my fathers. Now, this is a very interesting command, but it's something that we're going to look at in two weeks, because we'll see this command repeated again. For now, let's recognize that this is the first of several things that Jacob does as he approaches his own death. The next, we'll read about next week, being the adoption of Manesha and Ephraim, and then the blessings over the sons. So, this is an interesting story, right? There's a lot going on here just beneath the surface. And if you're familiar with thematic imagery and symbolism, you've probably already picked up on some of the aspects of the story that parallel messianic history and even prophecy. So here, at the end of the narrative of Genesis, let's look back just at the story of Joseph and... Let's tell the story once again. This time, though, rather than using names, I'm going to use thematic symbols to describe the story. I'm going to tell the story of Joseph, but as I tell the story of Joseph, see if you can hear in it the story of our own Messiah. You see, the story is more than simply the past as a prophecy of Yeshua in the past. In fact, the majority of this story is a story that's about where we are in history right now. And where we are continuing into the messianic kingdom i'm not really sure how this is going to turn out so pay attention to it and please let me know if this form of storytelling is beneficial for you to see deeper into scripture so without further ado there once was a man that was born to the family of israel this man was the chosen and honored son of the father though he did not fit the worldly qualifications to hold such a high status in his father's eyes. This status as favored and honored was a status that was confirmed by God through special revelation. When this man's brothers heard of this, they hated him and the way that he would point out their hypocrisy and their shame. They hated that he claimed the high and favored status in their midst, and his claims that he was the heir of the father, well, it made them murderous. And so it was that Judah sold him into shame, sold him to a foreign power to do with as they pleased. And this man was reported dead to his father and to the world at large. And from that day forward, Israel continued on in great sadness, full of shame and sorrow. Judah left his home after this tragedy, and he moved into the nations, and he married among them. He had sons with a foreign woman, but one by one his sons proved faithless and unworthy. And one by one his sons died in their sins. In his desire to save himself and his family, in the face of being wiped out, this man kept his final son from the covenant of promise. He betrayed his oath in order to grasp tightly and hold on to his own final son, afraid that he too would die if the covenant were upheld. These actions forced the woman of the covenant to make a difficult choice, to do the good thing, or to do the covenant thing. And the woman, using cunning, enticed the son of Israel into keeping the covenant, though he didn't know it at the time. In the end, the covenant was upheld. The sons were brought forth in the covenant, and sons of honor came forth, conceived in shame. Judah comes to the realization of his own faults and failures in his past, and he confesses his own unrighteousness in the face of a righteous foreign woman who was loyal to the covenant. During this time, the promised son of favor was still gone. But why did it matter? There was no need of salvation at this time. Oh sure, the sons, they bore the guilt and the shame, and they might even admit it grudgingly but there was nothing they could do about it now. There's no reason to seek out the lost son and be reconciled to him, because he's dead. Best to leave him in the nations and forget that any of this had ever happened. Besides, the earth still provided everything that they needed. Little did they know that a time would come in which the earth would cease to produce the bread of life. A famine would come that would take the bread out of the mouths of everyone the son who was sold into shame and death. He didn't remain in shame forever, however. The time of his reign had been foretold by God to him and through him to his brothers. This son, in the midst of shame and death, obeyed God and remained pure and faithful in all that he did, even in the midst of his own very personal tragedy. His faithfulness was rewarded as he was raised up into a position of honor and power in Egypt after a very long time. This favored and unique son, who was dead, was not truly dead. He learned of the famine that was coming to the land, and he began to prepare. Out of sight, out of mind. Not to save his family specifically, but to save the entire world and to preserve life. The time of difficulty came, and it hit the earth, and suddenly the inhabitants realized their need for salvation, and so they searched. And it came to their hearts that there was a place that had the food necessary to live. So it was that the sons of Israel began a journey to find and to bring back the life-giving bread to the household of Israel. Upon their arrival in the land, however, they encountered a foreign power that was strange was focused on them in a way that seemed unhealthy. The foreign power accused the sons of Israel of being enemies. He made demands of them that were unreasonable and difficult to accomplish. He imprisoned them for a time and sent them back into the world, the place of death, with orders to bring before him the favored son that had taken the place of their dead brother. Bring this brother that is the image of the favored son back into my presence and prove that you can live in unity with him. Little did these sons of Israel know that the strange foreign power that they were encountering was the very same brother that they had sold into shame. The one that they had given to a foreign nation in an attempt to hide their own shame. Now he had the opportunity to test them, to use the nations to prove their dedication to the unity of the family of Israel. They had come to him for bread. And so he desires to check their motives their honor will reflect upon his own so they had to be tested will they continue to sell and to get rid of those who expose their own shame and their hypocrisy or will they defend this brother that they hated from what is to come so the master in the land devises a series of tests to discover the truth of his brothers he reminds the brothers of their tendency to kill the honorable and the righteous, to put to death the prophets and the saints in their midst. He requires that they demonstrate that they are trusted by the one whom they have harmed the most. Can the sons work together for the purpose of saving their very lives? Time passes without any action taken by the sons of Israel until it is finally agreed. And once again, just as before, It is not until the situation gets dire that the family decides once more to ignore the danger and to seek the giver of the bread of life despite the danger of retribution. But the situation is such in the world that they have only one hope to go to for their salvation, only one person that they can go to for their sustenance. This strange foreign official that has been adopted and raised high by the world this man that they don't connect to on any level that they can identify with, but who has the power of life and death in his tongue. Upon their return, the sons of Israel are greeted with honor. Their hearing is returned to them as they are shown great favor and as they are treated to a banquet in the face of their enemies. They are blessed as the strange official feeds each of them in turn from his own plate. This man who takes away, is also seen to give sustenance. To some he gives more than to others. Perhaps to entice envy in the hearts of his brother. Perhaps to bring them to jealousy, to gauge their response. The sons of Israel, they then head home, believing that they have found success and favor with God, that they have found the favor of the bread of life that will sustain them. But they've only been given a sample of what could be. Then they are accused They're falsely accused Falsely accused of stealing from the foreign nations Falsely accused of betraying the hospitality of their host nation Falsely accused of taking things that rightly belonged to another This accusation was, of course, false And so the brothers are left with an option To flee in the face of accusation and save themselves And allow their brother to be taken into slavery to allow their brother to be taken in shame and destroyed as they save their own skins. Or they can stand and defend their brother that has been accused, the one that looks guilty by all intents and purposes. Not through violence, though. Rather, through an appeal to the offended party. An appeal that's not based on saving face or gaining anything, but rather an appeal for the life of their father and the vow to watch over each other that was taken from old in the past the brothers they would have abandoned each other to their fate they would save themselves at the expense of the other but now now the brothers beg to be placed into slavery themselves to save their brother from the same fate they seek to enter into the same fate that they had given their lost brother so long ago and judah specifically Judah asks to take the place of the accused. Why? For the sake of the vow that he had taken. And it's with this selfless act that the sons of Israel passed the test that was set before them by the son who was dead but is alive. And so the Savior of the world reveals himself to his brothers, inviting them to join him in the land that has been prepared for them. And the sons of Israel, they weep over the one whom they pierced. Uh, excuse me, uh, the one that they had sold into slavery. Then it is with great joy that the sons of Israel spread the news of the son who was dead and is now alive to all of the household of Israel. And it is with great joy that the house of Israel makes an exodus to join the risen son in the land of promise that he has prepared for them. And when the family arrives, they pass before the king in judgment and they are found worthy and given honor, not because of what they had done in the past, but only and solely based on the status of the son of promise, the one at the right hand of the judge. The family is given a place of honor, a place of bounty again, not because of anything that they had done to deserve this honor, but they receive it from the king based solely on their relationship with the son. Glory honor, status, and the same benefits and protections as priests. The brothers, in essence, become priests themselves for the God of the one who has created their salvation. And now comes the part of the story that we all want to judge the favored son for. Frankly, we simply don't understand what is happening here. When we view this last part of the story through the lens of the messianic age, though, it makes perfect sense. And that is what this part of the story represents. In the Messianic age, there will be three types of people. The priests, family of Abraham, and the rest of the world. The priests, the priests are cared for by the king of all. The family of Israel, they're cared for by the son. And the rest of the world, well, the rest of the world is on their own. But they will realize their need for the bread that the king has but they have no relationship with him other than that they live in his land and they are his subjects. And this bread, it comes with a cost for those who are not part of his family. And the cost will be everything that they own. And the world will sell themselves to him for the sake of their lives, for the sake of sustenance, to preserve life. And it is through this means that the world will be subdued. They will be brought to heal under the messianic king not through force or even through subterfuge but through cunning and a desperation on the part of the world and the realization that they cannot save themselves and so they will sell themselves to him and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that the favored son is the lord and the master of all The people of the earth will have no other choice, and in the end they will thank him for his mercy in saving their lives. Will they be his people? No, not family like Israel is, but subjects nonetheless to the great and the powerful king, the man of wisdom and discernment that has been given authority over all. And many sons will be adopted by the father. All of the sons will be blessed, and they will live in peace and prosperity with the world, cared for and ruled by the favored son their brother whom they destroyed but who now rules with a rod of iron this story of joseph is the story of our messiah when we highlight the themes in this way and we begin to catch a glimpse of the story that still lies ahead of us the time of the messianic kingdom a time of unity and togetherness where all of the seed of Abraham will be ruled by the righteous and holy King, Yeshua, blessed beyond measure and worth, not because of any inherent worth that we have in ourselves, but because of our relationship to our brother and our desire to do the will of the Father, despite what it might cost us. I pray that we can learn to be such a people, that we can learn this type of humility and we can operate in the way of life that would make our King proud to call us sons. And so the challenge remains to Deresh Chai in all that we do, to continue to seek life. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Deresh If this content has blessed you and you would like more, please consider subscribing, liking, commenting, and sharing with others. To find out more about what we do and to support this ministry, head over to seeklifesc.com. That's seeklifesc.com. We'll see you again next time as we De'er Shchai, as we seek life. Shalom.